0: Good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the Scriptures tonight. So if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to grab those and turn them open to Acts chapter 6. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, don't sweat it. Every Bible comes with a table of contents. And in the very beginning of the Bible, you can find a table of contents to help navigate this big book to find your way to the book of Acts. As we continue our our journey through this book, a book that we've been studying for several weeks now. When you get to the book of Acts, find chapter 6. The chapters in these books are the big bold numbers on the pages. And when you find a big bold 6, then under that I want you to look for verse 8 because that's what we're going to be picking up reading here in a moment. Uh, the little 8 or the little numbers, are, uh, they represent verses in the Bible. So you're looking for Acts chapter 6, verse 8 as we get ready to uh, look at a fascinating story. But as we prepare to do that, let me ask you this question who did you want to be like as a kid? Uh, when you were younger and you were growing up, when you were playing alone in your room perhaps, or whatever the case may be, who was it that you were admiring? Who was it that you were imitating? Who did you want to be like as a kid. You see, I was a kid during the 80s, and I was a teen during the 90s, and there was a stretch of time when a lot of guys like me wanted to be like Mike, and we wanted to be like Michael Jordan, the GOAT, greatest basketball player who's ever played the game, and a lot of times, uh, there would be these commercials that would pop up, ran by Gatorade, with this song that would play over and over and over again, like Mike, you want to be like Mike, like Mike, you want to be like Mike, that's not what it sounded like, but that's what it was, everyone like me wanted to be like Mike. And so we'd go out onto the basketball court, we'd stick out our tongues, we'd wear our sweatbands, and we would play ball trying to imitate Michael Jordan on the court. Also, being a child of the 80s and a teen during the 90s, there was a little show that kind of bridged those two decades called Saved by the Bell. And there was a time, I'm not ashamed, I guess I should be ashamed to admit, there was a time as a kid when I wanted to be like Zach Morris. I thought he was the coolest. He could snap his fingers and everything would freeze and he would continue doing what he was doing. And so I wanted to be like Zach Morris. This past summer, uh, we hosted a party in the park as we normally do during the summers in the life of our church. And uh, at these parties, we usually have a face painting booth. And my son Asher went to one of those booths and and asked the person doing the face painting, "Look, I, I just want black paint smeared all over my face." And uh, and uh, so it's like the guy, the the person doing it was just kind of okay. And then honored his request is smeared black paint around his mouth and his cheek and chin and all those things and then after that he came running in my direction and saying daddy daddy look i'm like you now i'm like you I, i've got a beard and and i looked at my son who who wanted to be like his dad it was it was a it was a beautiful thing for me as a father now every one of us have people that we have admired people that we have looked up to people that we've dreamed about being like for various Reasons, But there's something that all of us share in common, everyone who has a relationship with Jesus, who's put their faith in Jesus, everyone in whom the Holy Spirit has caused to come alive to the reality of Jesus. Deep down inside each and every one of us, there is a shared desire to be like Christ, that ultimately and in in the deepest parts of who we are, that is who we want to be like. We want to be like Christ. We want to be like the one who has saved us. The Holy Spirit kicks that desire up within us. And when you turn your attention to Acts chapter 6, we're going to be introduced to the story of a guy, perhaps, who was more like Jesus than anyone else you'll read about in the scriptures. And what I love about this story is that it concerns a man named Stephen. And Stephen wasn't an apostle, meaning he wasn't a leader in the life of the church in Jerusalem. He wasn't like Peter, James, and John and some of the other disciples who turned apostles because they interacted with the resurrected Jesus upon that moment. They held that incredibly significant responsibility in the life of the church to kind of get the church started and all those things. Stephen was a member of the church in Jerusalem, but he wasn't an apostle. He was an ordinary member, a regular disciple, and yet here in this story, you're going to find him looking and acting more like Christ than perhaps anyone else in the scriptures. I love this because although Stephen wasn't an apostle, he was no less gifted than the apostles. And that's an important thing for you and I to consider because sometimes, and this is just kind of a sideboard thought sidebar thought, sometimes we equate role and responsibility in the life of the church as Uh, as synonymous with giftedness, as synonymous with uh, potential for being used by God in the kingdom. And sometimes we think, well, if I'm not a pastor, an elder, if I'm not a missionary crossing cultures to tell people about Jesus, I can't be used by God in significantly impactful ways on my city or on my social circles or whatever the case may be. But Stephen's example flies in the face of that mentality because here you have an ordinary disciple. He's not an apostle. He's not a pastor. He's an ordinary disciple loving Jesus, serving Jesus in his city, and God uses him to make a significant impact in the life of the church then, and his story continues to impact the life of the church today, which is why we're reading his story tonight. And so you have Stephen. Stephen's most famous, if you've heard of him, he's most famous for being the first martyr in the history of Christianity. That he's the first person to ever lose his life because of his faith in Jesus, because he bore witness to Jesus. Stephen would lose his life for that, making him the first martyr. But one thing you have to understand is that Stephen did not make it his ambition to become a martyr. Uh, In fact, no Christian should make martyrdom their ambition. Uh, We should not stay awake at night dreaming about the day when we can give our lives for Jesus no martyr has ever really carried that dream or carried that driving ambition. Stephen wasn't someone who wanted to become a martyr. Stephen was one who wanted to be like Christ. And because he wanted to be like Christ, yes, that eventually turned into this martyrdom situation and this martyrdom story. But he didn't wake up on this day thinking, I'm going I'm to lose my life for my Savior. He didn't say that. He just said, I want to be like my Savior. I want to go out into the city and love people, serve people, share with people. And in the stride of being like Christ, he did lose his life. And so what I want us to do is look at his story. And I want to show you a few ways in which Stephen was like Christ. And I hope that his story will inspire the Spirit's work in your life as you Make it your ambition to become like Christ and to follow the Savior and to do the things that the Savior has called you to do as as a follower of his. And so there are three ways I want us to think about uh, Stephen being like Christ. The first one is uh, we'll pick up in verse 8 of chapter 6, and we'll just read this, and then we'll unpack it. Verse 8 says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members Of the freedmen's synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, so they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man never stopped speaking against this holy place, referring to the temple and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him, that is, at Stephen, and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The first thing we notice about Stephen in this passage is that he was serving like Christ. He was serving like Christ when you pick up in verse 8, and he's described as being a man who is full of grace and power. Another way of saying that is that Stephen was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit, much like Jesus You know that when Jesus lived and loved and served those that he came in contact with, he did so because he was full of grace and he was full of power. He was full of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that he has given to his people upon his resurrection and ascension. And so now Stephen is full of that same spirit. And in the power of that same spirit, he is serving in two ways. On one hand, he's serving by performing many signs and wondrous deeds. Stephen is doing the same types of miracles that the apostles were doing in Acts chapter 4 and in Acts chapter 3 and in Acts chapter 2. Stephen is doing the same type of miracles that Jesus himself was doing in the Gospels that you read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Stephen is serving by meeting needs, by performing many signs and wonders. He's serving by way of deeds. But he's not just doing things for people. He's actually saying things to people. He's speaking with words of wisdom, and he's speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit. So Stephen is serving like Christ because he's engaging in this word and deed ministry that is making an impact, that is leading to life for many, many people. And he's doing this all as he is full of grace and full of power and The impression he is making upon the members of the Sanhedrin, this this local ruling council that was in charge of kind of enforcing Judaic rule in Jerusalem, that they kind of took care of matters that the Roman government didn't want to deal with, uh, that the Roman government wasn't concerned about, the Jerusalem council or the Sanhedrin would cover that. And the members of the Sanhedrin have heard these charges that have been launched at Stephen saying, this guy is, is, he's turning everything around, he's, He's talking bad about the temple, he's dismissing the law, and all these charges and accusations are coming against Stephen, so this council brings him before them, and it says that when they looked at him, I love this, when they looked at Stephen, his face shone like that of an angel. I think it's a beautiful thing that this man who is full of grace and power, that his being filled with the Holy Spirit not only showed up in the things that he was doing and in the things that he was saying, it showed up in the things that people saw when they looked in his direction. I don't know if you've ever had that interaction with someone who's met Jesus Someone perhaps you've known most of their lives who perhaps was resistant to the gospel and didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And maybe they experienced things in life and in this world that really made them hard, that really made them stern and really kind of made them want to put on a tough face before everyone that they came in contact with. But then the moment the spirit comes in and the gospel is believed and Jesus begins to do a work, suddenly that stern countenance becomes more of a joyful countenance. And their physical, uh, the presentation of themselves just changes changes, and they're marked by a bit of levity, they're marked by a bit of whimsy, their life is being set free and liberated from the things that perhaps made them stern and harsh and hard, so that now that they're liberated and they're full of joy, this would be Stephen's example. He's full of grace and power, and it's showing up not only in what he is saying, and it's showing up not only in what he is doing, it's showing up in his very countenance. This is a man whose joy was noticeable was readily apparent by everyone who came in contact with him. Now, as you and I begin to become more like Christ, I think levity and whimsy should become a part of our lives. As we become more like Christ, I think joy in our countenance should be discernible by those that we're interacting with. But unfortunately, sometimes when we are trying to serve Christ as Christians, we put so much pressure on ourselves to do everything right and to do everything well That sometimes this pressure that we self-inflict, that we impose upon ourselves, it can make us kind of hard. It can make us kind of touchy. It can make us kind of sensitive. And and so when things aren't going right and the things we're trying to do for Jesus, we can become frustrated and our countenance can become more stern and more hard. And all the while, we we are contradicting the very spirit that is alive within us, a spirit that brings joy within us, a spirit that would say, hey... The joy of the Lord is our strength as we serve. And so we want to be full of grace and power. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we might serve like Christ. That means when hostilities or or opposition arises against the ministry that you are engaging in, you don't allow those hostilities to harden you. You allow those hostilities to drive you deeper into your relationship with Christ so that you don't become hard, but yet you continue to live with levity, you continue to live with whimsy, and you meet hostility not with hostility, you meet hostility with humility. You meet opposition with a a recognition of who's seated on the throne in every moment of every day, and if Jesus is sovereign, if he is ruling and reigning, we have no reason to be hard. We have no reason to be downcast. We have no reason to serve him out of frustration or to serve him out of duty. No, we can serve Jesus like Jesus, having his spirit within us that's affecting not only the things that we say or the things that we do, it is affecting the very countenance and the expression of our lives. So let me ask you, when you were serving Christ and people are observing you serve Christ, do they see you as a joyful servant? Would they describe you as someone who hasn't, who's living, yes, with their feet on the ground, engaging the real world, but are aware of the realities of heaven? Are they seeing you serve as someone who's trying to prove themselves to Jesus and that can harden you? Or do they see you serving Jesus as one who's been set free, as one who has experienced levity and whimsy via the grace that has been given to you. Now that word grace, translated in verse 8, it says grace and power. Now we know that grace means that God treats people far better than they deserve. That to be saved by grace means that God gives to you things that you do not deserve, namely your salvation. But the word grace, before the writing of the New Testament, it was used in the Greek language to refer to this charming personality to someone who is filled with whimsy, to someone who is marked by levity. And I think both of those are at play here because Stephen has been saved by grace. That grace has brought whimsy and levity into his life so that he is now serving Jesus like Jesus. And when people look at him, they see him as someone who belongs to heaven, that his countenance is reminding them of that of an angel. That this is his citizenship. That's the world that he belongs to. When you are serving Christ, are you serving Christ in light of this world? Or are you serving Christ in light of the world that is to come? Are you a reflection of heaven in the ways that you go about engaging the world around you? Well, as we grow in our relationship with Christ, as we mature in our faith, we're going to find ourselves representing heaven far more often than we are reflecting the fallenness of the world that we are currently a part of. And so Stephen here is serving like Christ, and people aren't responding positively to what he's doing. He's uh, about to be conspired against. He's about to be lied against as false witnesses are referred to in verse 13 he's being accused of of saying things that he probably didn't say Uh, verse 14 it says that we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us it's possible that Stephen was was saying a lot of the things that Jesus said when he was on earth when he was teaching people about the kingdom but then those all those who heard him only kind of heard a part of what he said and they took a portion of what he said and maybe distorted it and ran with it in a direction that Stephen nor Jesus never intended them to. For example, there is a moment in John chapter 2 where um, Jesus refers to the temple and he talks about the temple's destruction. And listen to what he says in John chapter 2 verse 19. He's talking to some religious leaders very similar to the ones that Stephen is addressing. And it says that Jesus answered, Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, when Jesus was talking about the temple in the Gospels, he was talking about the true temple. He was talking about the one that the physical temple was to point people to. And, and so it wasn't that Stephen was saying, yes, this temple over here is going to be destroyed, it's going to be overturned. He's, when he talks about the temple, Stephen we presume, was talking about Jesus who would be the true temple. So he's serving Jesus, he's serving like Christ in this moment, and as he's doing so, opposition is rising, his words are being twisted, he's being lied against, he's being accused of things that he didn't do, and then you pick it up in chapter 7, verse 1. Because he moves from serving like Christ to speaking like Christ in verse 1. After these charges are raised, it says, are these things true? The high priest, that is the guy in charge of that council, asked, are these things true? And then from that point forward, from verse 2 all the way to verse 53, (laughs) Stephen's going to preach a sermon. Uh, He's going to preach a really long sermon. Now, the book of Acts, one way to think about this book is that it is a collection of sermons. It's a collection of sermons that were preached in the first century as the church was being birthed. As churches were being planted all over the known world, as the gospel began to move, it moved through proclamation. And so Stephen takes this moment to answer this question by delivering a fascinating sermon. But here's what I want you to think about. What Stephen says in this message is what got him killed. Stephen isn't killed for the things that he was doing in Jerusalem. Stephen is killed for the things he was saying in Jerusalem. As Christians, it is not the things that we do that arouses the hostility of the world around us. Nobody really gets mad when we feed the hungry. Nobody really gets mad when we give coats to people who are cold on Seattle's city streets. Nobody gets angry when we advocate for the abolishment of human trafficking. All things that we do, all things that we do in service to Jesus, like Jesus. But what arouses the world around us hostility, it isn't the things that we do, it's the things that we say. It's the worldview that we communicate. It's the gospel that we declare. When Stephen is murdered in this story, he's murdered not because he performed signs and wonders. He's murdered because he preached a sermon. He's murdered because he opened his mouth and he shared the gospel. And remember, this is a guy who wasn't an apostle. So if you're sitting in here tonight and if you think it's only a pastor's job to share the gospel, it's only the missionary's job to open their mouths and to tell people about Jesus, this story contradicts that assumption. This story cuts the legs out from underneath that security that you are sitting in. What got Stephen killed wasn't the things that he did. It was the things that he said. But what is it that he says in this sermon? Now, it's a long sermon. I'm not going to read the whole sermon. I would encourage you tonight, perhaps, to open your Bibles when you get home and read through all the things that Stephen says and what it is that he does. But what I want to do is I want to show you or basically summarize what it is Stephen communicated in this message. And it can all boil down to one statement. This whole message can boil down to one phrase. Stephen essentially stands up before this Jewish council, before these religious leaders who knew the Old Testament, who read the Old Testament. He looked at them and said, I want you guys to know that Jesus is right and we are wrong. That's his message. His message Jesus is right, we are wrong. Now the thing that that people was wrong about was assuming that God was with them simply because they had a physical temple standing in the city of Jerusalem. And it was the assumption that they had thinking that if they have the law, then that means God is with them and that God is for them. But in Stephen's sermon, he's saying, look, yes, God wants to be with his people. And he shows God's desire to be with his people when he talks about Abraham's story. And then when he talks about Joseph's story. Then when he talks about Moses' story. Then when he talks about the people of Israel's story. He's affirming over and over and over again. Yes, God wants to be with you. He wants to be with his people. But in order for God to be with you, you have to receive him on the terms that he lays out. And what he's showing as he traces the history of Israel is that time and time again, the people of Israel rejected the person that God would send to them to tell them about the true meaning of the law or the true meaning of the temple. These prophets who would step onto the scene of Israel's history and say, look, just because we build a tabernacle or we build a temple, that doesn't guarantee that God is for us. Because there's something that the tabernacle and the temple is leading us towards that we must never neglect. And that would be the coming of the Messiah. But what Stephen is communicating in a myriad of different ways, he's saying, look, God wants to be with you. And and you think he's with you just because you have the temple and you have the law. But you are just like your ancestors who every time God tried to move amongst them, they rejected what God was doing. And so he builds this case that says, look, the people of Israel, there's far more failure in their history than there is faithfulness. There's far more rejection of God's desire to be with them than there is acceptance of that. And he's saying, and I want you, the people he's talking to, I want you to know that you are just like that. In fact, you have rejected the clearest demonstration of God's desire that he wants to be with you. That is the sending of Jesus, the coming of Jesus. You all rejected Jesus. You all crucified Jesus. And he's communicating this in a myriad of ways to drive home this point. So when you get to the end of the sermon, listen to what he says. Verse 51. He says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You were always resisting the Holy Spirit, as your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of, here's the phrase, the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you have not kept it. You have not followed the law to its goal, to its end. And Stephen knows that when Jesus stepped onto the world, he he stepped onto the scene in Jerusalem and he began to speak. He began to say things like, you know, I didn't come here to abolish the law. I didn't come to erase any iota of the law. I've actually came to fulfill it. I've come to carry the law for you. This This is why it's important for you and I to believe that Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience. Because when we say that he lived a perfect life of obedience, we're saying Jesus did something that we could not do. When we say that Jesus fulfilled the law, we're saying that he is the righteous one. When we acknowledge that, affirm that, declare that, we're basically saying Jesus is right, we are wrong. Jesus is holy, we are not. Jesus is perfect, we are not. Jesus is savior, we are in need of being saved. And so he makes this point, talking about the law, saying, look, you people put your confidence in your ability to keep the law, but there's only been one righteous one. There's only one right one. His name is Jesus. You rejected him. You crucified him. You murdered him. And then he goes on to say things like, well, you think you're okay just because the physical temple is built in Jerusalem. Understand that that temple does not confine the presence of God That God's presence isn't confined to that one location. He's saying, look, God wants to be with you, but if you are going to receive God, you, you don't go to the temple now, you go to a person. Or you don't go to a place, you go to a person. Jesus is the righteous one. The entire history of Israel was driving towards the coming of Jesus. But when Jesus came, they rejected him initially. They crucified him and they saw him dead. And Stephen's making this clear, and it's not an easy message to deliver to a bunch of, you know, sharp-toothed religious people. It's a very hard message for him to bring, but this was the message he was delivering because he, in, in this moment, is speaking like Jesus. He's reminding people, look, Jesus is right. We are not. We need Jesus, And so he's emphasizing this over and over and over again. And really, when you and I learn to speak like Jesus, that's what we say. What does it mean to share the gospel? It means to say, look, Jesus is right. We are wrong. Jesus is good. We are not. Jesus is perfect. We are imperfect. Jesus is holy. We are unholy. He's right. We are wrong. Therefore, we need Jesus. This is why we don't let anybody say, well, why don't we just be good people and Let the chips fall where they lie. Well, because being a good person only counts whenever you're comparing yourself to other good people. When you compare yourself to other good people, you might find some steps to climb in superiority to someone else. You might not be as bad as your neighbor or as bad as so-and-so or whatever the case may be. That may be true, but there's still only one righteous one. There's still only one who is right while everyone else is wrong. There's only one who has fulfilled the law. There is only one who has replaced the temple. There is only one Savior, one Messiah. This is what Stephen is communicating. Now, as you and I learn to speak like Christ, that's what we tell people. Jesus is right. We are not. And we say that in a thousand different ways. In this story, Stephen is declaring that message from the Old Testament. And he's declaring it from the Old Testament because he's talking to a bunch of Jewish leaders. So speaking like Christ means I'm going to know who it is I'm talking to. And I'm going to speak in a way for them to understand. And so he makes his case from Scripture. Later on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, the guy named Paul steps into a place called Athens. And Athens isn't like Jerusalem. And he's talking to people who weren't religious leaders in the Sanhedrin or serving in the temple. They weren't in that camp. He's talking to a bunch of Greek people who weren't as familiar to the as as familiar with the Old Testament. And so he doesn't give them a history of the Old Testament. Instead, he draws on some poetry and he draws home some imagery that was familiar to everyone in Athens. And he communicates the gospel that way. Now he doesn't go from the Old Testament to them. He goes from some Greek poets to them. But he's all. But he's but he's going to the same place, he's going to the same person, he's still talking about Jesus. So there's a thousand different ways you can learn to speak the message, Jesus is right, we are not. And how we do that depends in large part upon who we're talking to. Who are we communicating the gospel with? This is why, like Jesus, we want to know people. Like Jesus, we want to engage with people in real settings and real environments so that we might know who they are and how they are wired. What is the worldview they are operating with so that we can address that with the reality that Jesus is right and we are not. And so here Stephen is drawing all this stuff from the Old Testament because he knows who he's talking to. He's speaking like Christ in this moment. Now what's really interesting about this is that he turns the table on those who are opposing him. Those who are opposing him have said, Stephen, you are demeaning the law and you are demeaning the temple. But Jesus is making, I mean, Stephen is making the case, no, I'm not demeaning the law. I'm not demeaning the temple. You are demeaning the law. You are demeaning the temple. And the reason for that is because you don't see that Jesus fulfilled the law and you don't see Jesus as the true temple. So he communicates that message. But when he says that, get this, he's actually telling these Bible scholars that they don't understand the Bible. He's saying, you don't understand the book that you claim to believe. Because if you're reading the Old Testament and it's not leading you to Jesus, you're not reading the Old Testament rightly. You're not understanding the Bible. And he got this from Jesus earlier in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 24, verse 26. Jesus would make this statement. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Then in Luke 24, verse 44, he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand what? Understand the scriptures. To understand the scriptures as they related to Jesus. So if you're reading the Bible and your reading of the Bible isn't driving you to Jesus, you're not reading the Bible correctly. And if you're listening to those who are antagonistic towards the Christian faith and they are using the Bible to try to identify these holes and flaws and all these weaknesses in the faith, if they're reading the Bible and it's not leading them to Jesus, they don't understand the Bible. Therefore, they shouldn't be listened to. Only those who are saying Jesus is right, we are not, only those can really understand the Bible. Only those can read it, only those can interpret it, only those can really teach and proclaim it John chapter 5 verse 39 Jesus says to religious leaders very similar to the ones that Stephen is talking to you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them in other words you're not a Christian because you read the Bible you don't have eternal life just because you read the scriptures he goes on he says and yet they testify about me but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life You're not reading the Bible to get to me. That's the breakdown. That's the problem. Jesus is right. We are not. That's the message of the Bible. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message Stephen is communicating. And that's the message we communicate in a thousand different ways as we engage the world around us. So Stephen here is serving like Christ. And he is speaking like Christ. But then when you get to verse 54, this is where we begin to see him suffering like Christ. Check out verse 54. It says, When they heard these things, that is the religious leaders, when they heard that Jesus is right and they were not, it says they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Make note of that name. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. Saul, chapter 8, verse 1, agreed with putting him to death. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So Stephen here begins to suffer like Christ. Verse 54 says that the people were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. The only other place in the New Testament where that language is used is to describe what's happening in hell. So what's happening in this moment is that the forces of hell are railing against Stephen's declaration, Jesus is right, we are not. Hell hates that reality. Hostilities rise in response to that declaration. Jesus is right, we are not, people get mad. Jesus is right we are not people start gnashing their teeth and as they gnash their teeth at Jesus they eventually take a bite out of him they move to put him to death a chaotic scene occurs and stones are being picked up and hurled in Stephen's direction but notice verse 55 Stephen as he's full of the holy spirit it says he wasn't he didn't look at everyone with hostility because they were getting ready to kill him instead he turned his gaze towards heaven And as he did so, he was given some vision where he saw Jesus. Only when he saw Jesus, Jesus wasn't seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Every other time we give a picture of Jesus in heaven in the book of Acts, he is seated at the right hand of God. But here in this moment, as Stephen is about to be put to death, we're told that Jesus got up out of his throne and he's standing in heaven. It's a magical thing to think Jesus is standing in response to what Stephen is declaring. He is standing in response to what Stephen is about to experience. Now, why would he stand in heaven at this point in time? There's a few reasons. One, many say that Jesus is standing as a way of showing honor to his servant. He's standing as a way of showing honor to Stephen, the one that everyone is rejecting, the one that everyone is about to hurl stones at. He's standing in honor of Stephen others would say he's standing in anticipation of hosting Stephen in heaven that there's coming a moment when Stephen's about to lose his life he's going to go to sleep in this world he's going to wake up in the new heaven and he's going to wake up in the presence of Christ and so Jesus is standing up because he's the great host And he welcomes people into his presence. He welcomes his kids into his presence upon their death. So there's honor there. There's the reality of Jesus hosting his people in heaven when they die. But then there's another dynamic. It's the dynamic of advocacy. That Jesus is standing because he is advocating for Stephen in heaven. He's advocating for the one who is acknowledging him on earth. He's standing up to say, yeah, that one belongs to me. He acknowledges me on earth. I advocate for him in heaven. That's the rhythm of the Christian life, isn't it? We acknowledge Jesus now. And Jesus advocates for us now. And so Jesus stands to honor his servant. He stands to get ready to host Stephen. And then he stands to advocate for him saying, yes, he belongs to me. He's one of mine. It's a remarkable thing that he would stand in this moment. But then notice what Stephen says. Everyone begins to yell. They drag him out of the city. They take stones and start throwing at him. And look at verse 59. This is where you really see Stephen suffering like Christ. It says that while they were stoning him, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Do you know who said those same words? When Jesus was about to breathe his last breath on the cross, he cried out, Heavenly Father, would you receive my spirit? The same words. Then we're told that he knelt down and he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do not hold the sin against the ones who are killing me right now. Who else said that? You remember when Jesus was dying on the cross and he looked out upon the crowd who was gnashing their teeth in his direction and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen is suffering like his Savior. He's suffering as one who is full of grace and full of power. He says, Jesus, receive me and forgive them. That's a wonderful prayer to pray when you're dying. Jesus, receive me and forgive them. That's Christ-like. That's gospel. But notice in verse 1 of chapter 8, it says there was a guy named Saul standing there, and he was agreeing with Stephen's execution. Now, in Acts chapter 9, this guy Saul is going to meet Jesus. And his name's going to be changed to Paul. And Paul is going to give his life serving Jesus, speaking like, serving like Jesus, speaking like Jesus, and suffering like Jesus. So think about it. Stephen is dying. He looks up to heaven receive me. Stephen is dying, and he looks out at all the crowds, and he says, Father, forgive them. Do not hold the sin against them. Does God answer his prayer? Yes, he answered it by saving Saul, the very one who was quarterbacking Stephen's execution. He would later meet Jesus, become a Christian, and everything's going to change. Stephen's prayer was answered. It was answered with Saul's conversion. It was answered with this guy Saul being forgiven of his sins. This reminds us that there's really no one too far gone to be saved. There's no one too twisted to be turned around by Jesus. There was no one too dark that the light of the gospel cannot break through and shine its light and life upon. This was Saul's story. And as he is... Saved, redeemed, rescued, liberated. He begins to serve like Christ and speak like Christ and suffer like Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Listen to Paul express this dynamic. Paul's ambition would change, his desires would change. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 My goal is to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Those are the words of the very one who stood over the execution of Stephen in Acts chapter 6. He meets Jesus. His desires change. He's now saying, look, I I want to be like Christ. I want to know Christ. And he's expressing that in Philippians chapter 3. It's a beautiful thing to consider the, the way Jesus can change a life, the way Jesus can change a person. This is the story. These are the stories that we're reading about in the Bible. These are the stories that we experience ourselves as we serve like Christ and speak like Christ. And and when we are called upon we suffer like Christ. There was a man by the name of Ronnie Smith. Ronnie Smith was a member of a church in Austin, Texas. It's a church called the Austin Stone Community Church. Now Austin Stone has been a good friend to our church over the years and if you were to meet Ronnie at Austin Stone, you wouldn't have seen him with a microphone. You wouldn't have seen him standing before groups of people doing the types of things I'm doing now. He was a member of the church serving Jesus faithfully. But then one day, Jesus kind of intersected his life and said, I want you to go and move to Benghazi, Libya. And it was a kind of a surprising call because at that time, Benghazi was in was utter chaos, it was a very dangerous place to move to, yet that's what Ronnie believed Jesus was telling him to do. And when a pastor asked, why Benghazi? Why are you in Benghazi? Why are you now living in Benghazi? He said, well, there's nowhere else that's home. He said, "This is, this is there's literally no place on earth that we would rather be nowhere than Benghazi right then and there. But then one of the pastors would describe what happened to Ronnie as he was out jogging one day as he normally did when he was there. Listen to what goes down. A black jeep circled Ronnie several times as he was on his daily jog in his neighborhood in Benghazi, Libya. The two Libyans in the jeep pulled up to a car, stopped nearby, and is that the American, they asked. The man smoking and waiting in the car said, yes, he lives here and he's a good man. Ronnie had lived in Benghazi for nearly a year, teaching science to Libyan high school students. He loved working in education, and as it gave him the opportunity to pour into the lives and aspirations of Libya's next generation. The black jeep circled back to Ronnie. A quick word was exchanged, and then the Libyan men emptied six bullets into Ronnie's chest, killing him instantly. Now, Ronnie's wife and two-year-old son had returned two weeks before to the USA for their Christmas holiday. Ronnie died on December 5th, 2013, one week before he was before he was to join them. Now his story made national headlines in this country. It circulated all around, perhaps you heard it. And many in the media were wondering why a guy like Ronnie would move to a hostile place like Libya. Why would he make that decision? Why would he step into such hostility? Why would he put his family there? And while the media in our country were scratching their heads trying to figure out why someone would do something like that, all of heaven knew exactly why someone would make decisions to do that. All of heaven knew exactly why he chose to do what he did to be where he was and to serve as he did. Like Stephen, Ronnie did not set out to be killed in an effort to love and to serve people in light of the gospel. He didn't write that in his story saying, This is how I want my story to end, especially being married with a two year old son. But what he did do, he set out to be like Jesus. He set out to grow in his relationship with Christ. And as he became more like Jesus, he found himself serving like Jesus. He found himself speaking like Jesus. He found himself even suffering like Jesus. Is there anything more Christ-like? Is there anything more Christ-like than a person being willing to step into hostile territory In love and service of others. Is there anything more Christ-like than you and I going to where it's hard? Going to where it's hostile? So that we might love and serve other people in the name of Jesus. That's what Ronnie did. That's what Stephen's doing in this passage. And ultimately, that's what Jesus did. Jesus stepped into a hostile world that was hell-bent on rejecting him. Jesus stepped into a hostile world that was hell-bent on killing him and crucifying him, yet he stepped into hostile territory in love and service of others, willing to give his life so that he may liberate and save others. This is the gospel that we believe. This is the gospel that compels us to do the things that we do, to say the things that we say, to be in the places where we are. It's all in service to this Jesus, in many ways, like this Jesus. And when you think about Advent, everything really boils down to this reality. Advent is about Jesus stepping into hostile territory and love and service of others. And it is that Advent of Jesus that compels our going in love and service of others. So we want to be full of grace and power. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We want to make it our aim to know Jesus and to become like Jesus so that we might serve and speak and when it calls for it, even suffer like Jesus. Why? Because we know that this life is not our own. We have been bought with a price. We are owned by another. We have another king. We have another savior. We have another ruler. He's the one who is in charge. He's the one who's calling the shots. He's the one compelling us to do the things that we do, say the things that we say, and be who we are called to be. And so we press into that reality. We live in light of it, and we grow up and mature in that direction. Let's pray together.